Happy Saturday. It's December 16th, 2023, and you are listening to Morning Meeting. I am Ashley Baker in New York. Ooh, I can feel the vibe. And I'm Michael Haney in New York City as well. It's a marshmallow world, Michael. And we've got a great issue of Airmail this week. We've got a great issue as we close in on the holidays. First, we've got the comedy writer, Alan Zweibel, who's going to join us with his thoughts about life right now. And then Charles Learson is going to take us back to the early 1990s and tell us what he learned while being a ghostwriter for a very young and well, appropriately friendless Donald Trump. And finally, Alex Lebrano is going to join us from Paris with a report on the reopening and rejuvenation of one of the city's most treasured restaurants. Ashley, where would you like to go? Michael, at the moment, there's no place I'd rather be than New York City where it is snowing in the West Village and we are about to go to the Knickerbocker, our favorite official airmail canteen, at least one of them. But I have to say, after reading Alex's story on Maxime's, I'm desperate to hop on that Concord, rest in peace, and go back to the City of Light. Alec Lebrano is a writer at large for airmail and the author of My Place at the Table, a recipe for a delicious life in Paris. And we're thrilled to have him. Welcome back, Alec. I mean, we've been seeing Maxime's for years and years and years, and I always just wrote it off as a cheeseball tourist spot. Take us there now. Well, I always wrote it off as a cheeseball tourist spot, too. I've been there now four times. I thought, why bother? I mean, the landmark art, Nouveau interior is pretty spectacular. The friend who I lunched with there a couple of weeks ago described it as hideously beautiful. And I think that kind of nails it because you walk in and you think, wait, is this hideous or is it beautiful? Well, maybe it's both. It was built in 1893 and it kind of came into its own during the ballet pub. And it was a weird mixture of a nightclub and a restaurant. And as it turns out, that seems to be what Paris wants right now, because Laurent de, de Gourcoff, who's the head of this booming company in France called the Paris Society, has taken it over from the estate of Pierre Cardin, the most recent owner, and has relaunched it as, as pretty much exactly that. I mean, I would not say rush to Maxime's to have a meal. The food's actually better than I thought it would be. Best of all, sort of reasonably priced for the heart of Paris. But what's actually happened, and to his credit, is that the bar has taken off. I mean, the great hotel bars in central Paris were pretty much ruined by marketing people who were trying to make them trendy. You can't make something trendy. We know that. So don't try. What Laurent de, de Gorkov of the Paris Society did. He got Cordelia de Castellan, who's the designer at Christian Boutique. One of the designers at Christian Boutique was incredibly good taste. She dusted it off, cleaned it up a little bit, and pretty much left it just alone. Her great-grandfather was one of the headliner habitués of Maxime's for a long time, Bonnie de Castellan. And as she said in the French press, Cordelia has, she said, I didn't want to touch this. I mean, some fabrics needed to be replaced and it needed to be freshened up a little bit. She said, am I a red velvet and mahogany type of a gal? Not naturally, but for a night I can do this. <laughs> That's pretty much the way that I feel about it, seems to. But it's fun and it's starting to attract a interesting, fun, creative group of Parisians again, too. Most of all, who go to the bar, which is a lot of fun and has a pretty good part menu. Alec, I love what you say about these marketers having ruined these great hotel bars in Paris, because we used to talk so much about the bar at the Maurice, the bar at the Ritz, and they're kind of deadly now. Like, has anything filled that void? Well, that's the problem. They are deadly because, for example, the Crayon, when the Crayon was redone, the restaurant used to, over Les Ambassadeurs, which was a three-star restaurant overlooking the Place de la Concorde, was one of the most beautiful restaurants in the world. They decided to turn that into the bar 
And they kind of gunked it up, this beautiful 18th century decor. And now you need a reservation to go to a hotel bar. I don't know anybody who thinks that far ahead. And ditto the Plazatine, ditto the Bristol, these wonderful hotel bars, which were great for being just, I don't know. I mean, they were places you didn't think that much about, but they were dark and cozy and fun. And you see interesting people in them. And they were part of Parisian life. And they've pretty much been driven into extinction, which is why I think that Maxime's is suddenly being rediscovered for probably central location. And the intelligence of, again, like this way over the top Art Deco interior. Have you ever been there, actually, Ashley? Never. To Maxime's? No. I've been there. Have you? What do you think of it, Michael? I'm super excited to see it because it's weird. It's a little like sometimes like you're inside a coffin with that mahogany. <laughs> And red revel, and it makes a little claustrophobic, but it's also, I love as you detail in your story, it's got these layers of history from Jackie Onassis to Maria Callas and everyone in between. And I think it's great they've simply cleaned it up rather than gutted it. And what do we love about Paris? You love the bones of something. And you're exactly right with these hotels. They gutted them. And they used to be these wonderful places where you could feel like someone over there is meeting their mistress. And this guy over here is a CIA operative. And this one over here is a little old lady. And there was room for all of them at these hotel bars. And so it's great to see that they're making it. And also now they're pulling in this, as you said, next generation as well, right? They are. And I think it's interesting, too, that Degorkov has had the intelligence to, to leave well enough alone and leave the deadly nightshade atmosphere of that place, which is appealing to people again, because what I think really this, the early success of Maxime's is saying is that Paris wants to party again. And there is this desire for an all rolled into one night space where you can eat and dance and drink and stay late and whatever. And that's what Maxime's was the original. And that seems to be what people want in Paris right now. I mean, there's not much nightlife left in Paris. I think there's the yearning for, I mean, I don't think there's been a lot of nightlife since the 1970s, frankly, but in any major city, Western city. But I think we're kind of seeing shoots, green shoots of a desire to actually have fun after dark again. And that's my take on what seems is really interesting. And I did not expect, as I say and explain in my story, I thought, fine. I thought of it initially as a restaurant. It was a happy accident that I ended up better understanding Maxime's because I ended up running into a friend who said, hey, let's get a drink. And we ended up at Maxime's. And I said to her on the way up, I wasn't quite sure where she was leading me in the pouring rain. And there we were at Maxime's. And I thought, God, this is why? And then we stepped inside and the joint was jumping. And this friend of mine is a very talented French painter who lives in Madrid, said to me, she was visiting Paris and she said, this is the third time in a week I've been here. I mean, it's just people keep wanting to meet here for a drink and the drinks are expensive. But what we do is we buy a bottle of champagne. Once we've had one of the diddly silly cocktails, which have names like Callus or Anassas or Hepburn or whatever, we say, we don't need to do that again. Let's get a bottle of wine or a bottle of champagne and, and eat bar food. And so I think it's kind of a fun, useful thing to do in Paris again, especially good during the winter. I think Maxime's wintertime is the right time to go to Maxime's in the middle of the summer when it's hot. I mean, it's kind of a terrarium-like atmosphere, or as you described, sadly, often like atmosphere. But so it's a wintertime place. And so I think it's kind of fun as the holidays are upon us. Why not go to Maxime's and have a bottle of champagne? Alec, in addition to our passion for food in France, we also share a passion for travel. And I know you've got lots of interesting places coming up. Where are you going in 2024? I am going, I have a lot of wonderful things coming my way. I am going to a great trip to Asia. 
this winter. I'm going to be going on a, a cruise up the Mekong. I'm going to be, this is the first time I love Asia. I haven't been since COVID. I'll be in Thailand, Cambodia, and Vietnam. It's one of my favorite countries. And because I like Marguerite Duras, the French writer who grew up in a remote town in the Mekong Delta and have read so much about her and once interviewed her when she was an old lady living in Trouville in Normandy. I'm really looking forward to this because we're actually going on that cruise to the town that she grew up in. So I'll be able to go to the church that she had first communion in. That first communion didn't seem to take very well because she became the adolescent mistress of a Chinese doctor. But why not, right? And so these are among the things that I'm looking forward to this winter. Well, Alex, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you about all things food, travel, style, and the meaning of life. Come back again and wishing you and yours a wonderful holiday season. Thank you so much, Ashley, and both you and Michael too. Happy New Year. Thanks, Alex. Okay, Michael, get me on the train. We should be ringing in the New Year at Maxime's. I think I've solved all of our problems. Tell me about it. I mean, why am I going to the Knickerbocker with you when we could be at Maxime's in the corner? I have to say, the Knickerbocker is not looking quite as good now as it was 20 minutes ago, I'm sorry to say. Uh, no, the Knickerbocker, Knickerbookered. <laughs> should we change plans? Should we go to La Grenouille? Is that close in the, step in the right direction? Yeah, close to it, right? Yeah, not bad. Okay, where should we get next? Should we get a little bit of humor into this episode? Should we see what Alan's been cooking up? Yes, Alan's Weibel. It's a television writer, playwright, and screenwriter who the New York Times has said has earned a place in the pantheon of American pop culture. He was an original writer for SNL, Saturday Night Live, and he's won five Emmy Awards, and uh, including for its Gary Shandling show and Curb Your Enthusiasm. And he's joining us now from Los Angeles. Please welcome Alan. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so Alan, you've got a story this week, a column in the issue. I guess looking at humor, Jewish humor at this time, tell us what you were thinking when you decided to write this story. Well, it wasn't hard to think of only because it's the state of mind. As I say in the piece that, look, I've been doing this for a very long time. I was one of the original SNL writers when the show first started in 1975. And before that, I wrote jokes for stand-up comedians up in the Catskill Mountains. So I've been doing this a while and it's been fun. And the tradition is one that's really rich in terms of Jews and Jewish humor dating all the way back to Europe and coming forward into the United States. And it's never been a problem before. Even when there's a personal tragedy, like a death in the family or something that really sort of gives you an emotional upheaval, somehow, some way, humor is either cathartic or it's a way of deflecting what the pain is. But this... This is scary. This is really scary. And there was an inability on my part to not feel that this was quite different. This echoed all sorts of images and, and fears that my grandparents had told me when I was growing up. And I didn't take it too seriously because I didn't live through it. But the comparisons are sort of startling. And just the other day when you had those university presidents telling Congress, denying that the mention of genocide of the Jews was not illegal, so to speak. And you go, wait a second, what's going on here? So it was just a little bit overpowering. So I just said, okay, why am I not finding things as funny as I did a couple of months ago? And I wrote about it. Is anything at all making you laugh these days? And if so, what is it? Well, <laughs> 
look, you got to laugh. I've got grandkids who make me laugh all the time. So there's an innocence there. There's fun there. So I find retreat there. As far as outside in the world is concerned, look, I've got scripts that I'm writing and I've got a brand new novel and I have to force myself a little bit harder to be funny when I do my work. But I'm just talking about a general sort of fear factor that right now is not even imminent. It's here. It's present. And there's a little bit harder to be funny. The things that make me funny, that make me funny. The things that make me laugh are the things that always did. But I'm talking about new humor, creating new humor. It takes a certain mindset to look at the world and a little bit askew and be funny. And it's not happening right now. You've got a wonderful moment in your story where you ask Rob Reiner, what's at the root of Jewish humor, right? And what does he answer? Well, his answer is fear. And it's true. Rob is a good pal. He hosted the third SNL ever. That's when we became friends and we're still friends. We're still working on projects together. And we speak about this a lot. There's something about, look, it's always been that Jewish people have used humor as a way of deflecting, a way of coping, a way of dealing with whatever is scary and threatening. And there's this wonderful documentary called The Last Laugh that deals with humor and the Holocaust. And in it, the main person in it, a bunch of us did interviews for it, testimonies as to how far you can go with humor in the Holocaust. And there was a woman who was at the spine of this documentary, a 92 or 93-year-old Auschwitz survivor, who said you needed a sense of humor in the camps in order to survive. So there is something about humor, which is you tap into that instinct. It dulls the pain and even to laugh or to smile, whether it's gallows humor or not, it softens things. So that's what Rob meant. He and I have spoken about this many times. Am I wrong then to think as well, what's the old equation for humor? Well, tragedy plus time, right? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, exactly. Woody Allen made a big point of it, and I think it was crimes and misdemeanors. And yeah, it's like you can laugh about Lincoln getting shot now, but in 1865, it probably wasn't as funny. Yeah. So look, through the annals of history, Jewish people, any people, but if we're talking about Jewish humor, yeah, when something is a little bit in the past, I don't know if Tevye made jokes when the Jews were kicked out of Anatevka, whoever the real Tevye was. But Shalom Aleichem did it later when he made that character that way. And there is, I've seen it with my grandparents, I saw it with my parents, and I'm doing it now as a parent and as a grandparent. It's like, okay, what doesn't kill you, it's going to be okay. We'll figure it out, and we'll bust through the other side, and we'll look in the rearview mirror at this. Right now, being in the middle of it is just a little harder. That's all. Well, Alan, we love your perspective and the intelligence and humor that you bring to everything you do, including this great story. So thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. This is going to be a pretty interesting conversation with our next guest, Charles Learson, who is going to tell us about what it was like to be a ghostwriter for Donald Trump in the early 90s. Charles Learson is a former executive editor for Sports Illustrated and the author of several books, including Ty Cobb, A Terrible Beauty, and Down and Out in Paradise, The Life of Anthony Bourdain, which was published last year. Okay, Charles, first of all, please explain yourself. How on earth did you end up in the orbit of Donald Trump in the early 1990s? Well, I was stumbling around in the world of ghostwriting, I guess. My full-time job was at Newsweek. I was a writer there. I started as a sports writer, and then I was branching into other things. I had written a book. I got a call as a sort of a book doctor on a sequel to a biography of Chuck Yeager, a memoir of Chuck Yeager. He'd written one, a big bestseller. And so the kind of the market demanded that there be another book. And 
I got that gig because he had a, General Yeager was very cranky and he had a hard time with, I think the guy had a man bun, my predecessor, and couldn't deal with that. And eventually it fired that ghostwriter. So I didn't have a man bun and I got the job and I was able to kind of ride the wild bucking Bronco that Chuck Yeager was and get a book out of him and also get a sequel out of him when he told his whole story from birth to the present pretty completely in his first book. So somehow I was able to squeeze the rag a little more and get a few more drops out of it and deal with him. So I had that reputation. And Tony Schwartz, who'd written the first Trump book, The Art of the Deal, the very famous one, based on that success, became a millionaire and also got great plum gigs after that. And I couldn't tell you which one he was doing right after that, but he was on another job. And I got this call as a guy who could deal with a-holes, if you want to say it that way. My agent said, go talk to Trump, go up in his office in Trump Tower, and you'll be one of 10 or so people. This is just preliminary. This is just to see how you get along in each other's presence. I sat down with Trump in his office, gigantic office. It was just me and him. And within five minutes, we were getting very serious. He's not good at small talk or large talk either. But so we were starting to talk numbers. And as I say in the piece, he had this way of negotiating that he would get a little slip of paper, write down a number on it, turn the piece of paper face down and shove it across the desk to me. I picked it up. I didn't like that number or I thought I should even at least try to have a bigger number. So I crossed that one out. I wrote a bigger number there, turned it over, shoved it back to him. That went happened like four or five times back and forth. And as I say in the piece, he paid me the highest compliment a germaphobe can pay somebody by reaching over and shaking my hand and saying we had a deal. So that was how that happened. As I also say in the piece that it turns out that the art of the deal was a lot like something that happens 10 times a day at Bay Ridge Honda. That's the level that Trump was on of negotiating. He, he could handle that. Anything more complicated than that, I think he had to hand off to somebody else. That might be my favorite line in your story, by the way, just equating him to Bay Ridge Honda. So you also had this perspective on him that not many people had. And how would you describe him back then? Was he accomplished? Was he insecure? Was he strong? If you had to look at him now through that lens. It's important to remember for context that one thing with this piece, I hoped I wasn't normalizing him because I was trying to see the human side of him, which I don't think he has anymore. I think he's evolved or devolved into a monster feeding off the adulation and the attention of the media even, but also his famous base and all that. Back then, this is like circa 1990, he was a, basically a real estate person and not even the biggest one in New York, as all the big realtors love to point out at that time. He was a fairly accomplished real estate person, or so it seemed, but with his father's nest egg or grub stake that his father had given him. So the stakes weren't high at all. And America, especially New York, fell in love with him and decided he was this golden boy. And Tony Schwartz came along and really Really, I say this with all respect to Tony Schwartz, he did a fantastic job of crafting a Trump-like figure who isn't really very Trump-like, but who could pass for Trump on the page, who we wanted to believe was Trump. He was slick, he was smart, he was funny. So he had this reputation as that. I found him immediately where you couldn't be in his presence without seeing well intellectually challenged he was and didn't know anything about anything. He's a remarkable specimen of a human being. He really is. Whether you love him or hate him, you have to say it's, I've never met anyone like him who reached the age that he reached without learning the basic things, basic subjects in grammar school, geography, history, literature, even phys ed. He doesn't know anything about anything. And he was sort of faking his way through. He was a little more, considerably more mentally agile at that time. And as he was even a few years ago, if you go back and look at the 
clips. And I saw him as this fellow bridge and tunnel boy. I was from the Bronx and went to Catholic schools and went to Fordham. He was from Queens and he went to private schools, but he also went to Fordham initially before he switched to Penn. And he was like me. He was shy around women, kind of unsophisticated. And I was wondered if we could have a bond at points. Or, and I wondered if he wondered that too, because he almost seemed like a couple of times he was reaching out to me for friendship. But Trump is so socially awkward that it's really hard to tell if that was the case. Charles, does the fact that you had this job all those years ago still make you the most popular guy at a cocktail party? Or, or the most suspect, because a lot of times people just telescope that they don't bring to the conversation the context or remember that Trump was once, when I came upon him, he just written The Art of the Deal. That was a book that fathers gave to sons when they graduated and sons gave to fathers at Father's Day. And it was all nonsense. It was all stuff that Trump never said in a way that Trump could never say it. But he was this golden boy then. And if you don't remember that, I admit it's hard to remember that sometimes I'm not the most popular person because I'm suspected of being a Trumpster. And I wrote a book about Anthony Bourdain that came out a year ago. And people who wanted to be suspect of me were saying, oh, he wrote a biography of Trump and now wrote a book with Trump, which is true. And now he's writing this. So it there's been a bit of a taint there. So if people give me the benefit of the doubt, I can tell them a few funny stories, I think, and maybe extricate myself from their assumptions. <laughs> Charles, one of my questions in any writer doing a profile, and this kind of book is just an extended profile, you have to sort of know what to probe and also know maybe when someone's not being truthful. And you're in the presence of Trump, and it seemed you sort of figured out when he was lying to you. And then think about that story, if you could tell us about how he told you you saw a woman walking down Fifth Avenue one day. He would have these stories ready at the beginning of the day when I would show up my notepad and plop down in front of him in his office, which I did almost most days or a year. Right now, it's incredible to me. It seems like a dream. But yeah, so one day he said to me, yesterday I was walking down Fifth Avenue and I saw a woman who was completely naked. And th this was meant to prove the point, like anything can happen in New York, kids. So I kind of looked at him and I said, really, Donald, when you're a ghostwriter, you're kind of like a speechwriter. You go with what the person tells you. You don't always probe for the truth necessarily. You probe for what the person wants to say and you try to protect the person from being open to being attacked or corrected or ridiculed. So in that case, so I think I said something like I expressed suspicion, if only on the fact that Donald Trump was walking down the street, because if it was more than four or five feet, he would take his limo. So he wasn't walking down the street. He didn't see a woman. So he said, well, let's say that she had a mink coat on and underneath it, she was naked. I didn't know where he was going with this. And it turns out he really wasn't going anyplace in particular with it. So not just me, but the other people that worked in the Trump organization that had an instinct to protect him from himself. So we would, with the, a series of kind of simian facial gestures, communicate to him that maybe you shouldn't say that, or maybe you shouldn't go there, or that's not going to hold up under scrutiny, and you're going to get embarrassed if you say that. The funny thing about being up in the Trump Organization offices all the time, we're very nice people there, and they're very helpful to me, but I think everyone was very anxious for the moment that came when he was exposed for what he was. And I say that even the people who were very much on his side and wanted to protect him and were doing out of an almost motherly sense, there were a lot of women worked up there and wanted to protect him. But the, the funny thing was, if you fast forward into the future, when he got exposed, he got millions of fans who loved the stupid, bigoted, racist Trump, loved even the dumb Trump because maybe they identified with him. So when that moment came, it actually redounded to his benefit. Charles, have you had any contact with him in the last five, six years? Five, six years? No. The last time I had any conversation with him, I was at a 
party for Sex in the City was the beginning of the last regular season of Sex in the City. So this is a while ago. And there's a party and I was, I think I was schmoozing with Paulie Walnuts, the late Paulie Walnuts. And Trump was there, of course, it was the kind of thing he would be at. And he wandered over. I was standing there with my wife and he said hi to me. I guess he shook my hand because he's shaking hands with him as a big step because of the germs. But then he said to my wife, this man is a genius. And he pointed to me and then he kept walking. So that was the last uh, encounter I had had with him. And before I let my head get too big, even about that, first of all, it was if Donald Trump thinks you're a genius, then what are you really? And also that was one of his lines, like he would flatter people by calling them a genius or he would ask them what they thought of a building or something if they were in the limo with him or what they thought of something. And then he would immediately like zone out and not listen to their answer. But that was how he got by. It was his version of small talk, I guess. So no, I haven't had contact with him. We'll see if this piece of airmail stirs him up a little bit. Well, Charles, it's a great story. Your perspective is really incredible. Thank you so much for sharing it with us. Well, thank you so much. It was fun to talk about it with you guys. Thank you so much, Charles. Fascinating stuff. Michael, I'm glad I didn't have this job. Honestly, this is what we call hardship assignment. I know, but look, the guy's got like cocktail party stories for the rest of his life. You're always going to have a seat at the table because you can literally tell those stories forever. People are never going to get tired of them. Yeah, no kidding. Funny. All right. Well, Michael, obviously the only thing I'm going to do this weekend is watch Hugh Grant movies, but just in case I can free up another 15 minutes, do you have anything at all you can recommend to us? Are you going to watch Hugh Grant in the new Willy Wonka? I probably am going to get roped into that just because I have kids and they're going to force me. I was getting more of a Love Actually type of vibe. Love Actually, yes. Speaking of holiday movies, well, I've got one to recommend. It's called Past Lives. It came out this past summer and got a bit of attention, mostly on my radar because someone once told me it was the Gen Z version of Sliding Doors. But it got more attention this week when it landed a bunch of Golden Globe nominations. So I went back and looked at it. It's lovely. It's a wistful what-if story directed by Song Lee in her debut effort. And it's about two people who meet as kids in Seoul. And then we follow them through the years and across the sort of reunions and other moments and separations. The woman is played by Greta Lee, who many of you probably know from the morning show. And she just steals it. She steals your heart. She steals the whole thing. And the man is played by Tao Yu. I loved it. It's about love and regret and how the past is always with us, especially in our hearts. It is called Past Lives. And you can see it on Apple streaming. Well, thank you all so much for joining us. We wish you all a wonderful holiday season and a weekend full of shopping and hot chocolate. Michael, will you please read us out? Morning Meetings, produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our coders are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officers, Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Ashley Baker, Chris Garrett, Nathan King, Julie Vitale, and Ash Carter. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. The theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Colette Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. But you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe at Spotify or Apple Music, but most of all, thank you again for joining us.